open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 20. We'll be looking at uh, verses 20 through 28 this morning. And this is the last message. Uh, well, this is, this is the last specific message. Save myself a little caveat here. This is the last specific message in the series that we have been working through for some time now called Living Together in Christian Community. Drawn from this section of Matthew's gospel, essentially where he closed out his great Galilean ministry and then turned his attention to travel south uh, in preparation for his ascent to Jerusalem where he would die for the sins of his people. So it's been a good, it's been a good journey for us. I, there, I think there have been many lessons along the way that have been very helpful, very instrumental in some of your thinking. I know they have been in mine. I say that this is the last message, and then uh, I think maybe next week, actually, I'm going to come back and recap all of the messages, um, particularly since it was over the summertime and uh, with vacation, some of you missed them. So I think that's maybe the way I'm going to finish that up. But for today, this is the last specific message on living together in Christian community. You know, the world is desperate for leadership. We are in a leadership crisis in this world. And thinking people recognize that reality. People want a leader, somebody that they can trust, somebody that they can follow, somebody who seems to know the way. Leaders are also desperate to know how to lead. I did a quick uh, Google search on Amazon for, I just typed in the keyword on Amazon's website, uh, leadership under the book category. And it came up with over 125,000 books addressing the topic of leadership in one way or another. Seminars on leadership, webinars on leadership are, are all over the place. There's no shortage of people talking about leadership, how to lead. The biggest need of most churches, when you get together and you, and you talk to those uh, that, are, that are involved deeply in churches, and, and you say, what, you know, what is kind of your biggest need? And inevitably, they say, developing leaders. We're desperate for leaders in local churches. And the world equates leadership with attributes like knowledge, power, drive, passion, vision, charisma, prestige. These are the kinds of things that the world sees as a leader. But the Bible displays Leadership in a much different way. In fact, the Word of God tells us that God-pleasing leadership is defined in terms of the characteristic of servanthood. Servanthood. That is very, very different. You will not find many of the 125,000 books that will point you to servanthood as a primary characteristic to lead among the people of God. I say this is the, the Bible's or God's view of leadership, and, and I'd like to illustrate it for you just quickly, get you thinking about these things. But even in society, 
It's interesting how uh, leaders are described in the scriptures. Those leaders whom have God's uh, approval. For example, I think of King David, the great king of Israel, the prototypical leader of God's people, Israel. And in Psalm 78, describing David's leadership of the nation, it says that he shepherded Israel according to the integrity of his heart. Interesting word to choose to describe the reign of Israel's greatest king. He shepherded the nation of Israel. That speaks of one who, who has compassion and is and among the people and leading the people. You shepherd sheep, you drive cattle. So he shepherded the people of Israel. And you contrast that with Rehoboam, Solomon's foolish son. You remember after Solomon died, the nation came together and um, to affirm Rehoboam as king. And the people said to Rehoboam that uh, your father Solomon had made our lives difficult with his heavy taxation. And uh, so if you'll help us out. And Rehoboam asked the, uh, the older, wiser men of the court. And they said, what, what do you advise in this situation? How do I respond to these people? And they said, if you will serve them today, they will follow you forever. And then Rehoboam turned to the idiots that he was raised with. And he said, what do you say? And they said, well, you tell them that you think your father was a tough guy. You wait till you see me. And so he listened to the young foolish counsel and he responded to the people that way. You know the story, right? And it tore the nation asunder, a divide that has not ever been repaired and won't be repaired until the greater son of David, Messiah, sits on his throne and reunites the broken stick. So in society, God speaks favorably of a servant leadership and demonstrates by example an arrogant, lordly kind of leadership. In marriage, the New Testament speaks very clearly about leadership. It says husbands in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It speaks of a servant leadership in the home. In the church itself, Peter's words to the elders in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 1 through 5, he says, shepherd the flock of God, not lording it over them. So again, he speaks of that, that leadership model of the shepherd. And in the kingdom itself, the message is very clear from the text before us this morning that prominence in the kingdom of God is via the path of service. It's via the path of service. So we're going to look this morning at verses 20 through 28 and as we do that, uh, I want to see with you two sides of, of kingdom greatness. Kind of a coin, if you were, a heads and tail side of, of kingdom greatness. And, and the reason we need to do this together is so that we can enjoy the blessings of peace that come by doing things God's way. Okay? So here in the text, Matthew chapter 20. Now, a little background that would be important to get us there. It sets up this, this encounter. Jesus is, uh, is traveling 
uh, with the uh, throngs of the Galilean pilgrims who have, are traveling south in order to, to come into the city of Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. This is one of the three required feasts that all males age 20 and above are to participate in. And so the, the Galilean pilgrims would gather together in great caravans and then they would travel south to celebrate it together. It was, a, it was a wonderful time. Passover was a fantastic time of celebration of God's great deliverance of the people. It was a joyous occasion. Now, in order to travel south, and this would include men and women and children and so forth, in order to travel south, they didn't want to travel through Samaria because they ran the risk of, of potentially being defiled by traveling through this Gentile land. And if they were defiled, of course, they couldn't participate in the Passover festival. So they would, they would cross over the Jordan River to the east, and they would travel south along the east side of the Jordan River, crossing again back over at Jericho, and then they would proceed up the backside of the Mount of Olives. It was about 17 miles to the city of Jerusalem, and then they would throng the city for the great feast of the Passover. The territory on the east side is known as Perea, and it is there where a number of different events happen in the life of Messiah among the crowds that are recorded for us in the Gospels. In particular, Matthew tells us in chapter 19 and verse 16, if you just kind of peek back there to get a running start at this, that that Jesus is there in Perea, he's among the crowds, and that's where he is approached by the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler is inquiring about what do I need to do to obtain eternal life. Of course, Jesus addresses this young man, and Jesus, we're told in the scriptures, he loves this young man, and he addresses the deepest need of this young man's heart. And that is, a man is in love with the kingdoms of this world. And so Jesus presents to him the requirements of following him, and sadly, the young man turns and walks away. That leads to a, to a discussion among the disciples and Jesus about sacrifice and reward in the coming kingdom. And so Jesus speaks to them there and then illustrates in chapter 20 and in, uh, in verse 1 with the parable of the laborers in the vineyards, the teaching about sacrifice and rewards. And the basic teaching that he, that he gives here is that God rewards sacrifice not according to the prescriptions of this world, not in the way that it is done in this world, not in the way that you might expect it to be done, but God awards them sovereignly according to one's faithfulness. And so prestige and power and, and uh, prominence in this kingdom are no guarantee of anything such in the next. And he he, he, he bookends this teaching in, in chapter 19, verse 30, and chapter 20, verse 16, with the statement, the last shall be first, and the first last. Now, Jesus is about ready to cross over the Jordan River with the throngs, with the multitudes, but before he does that, we are told that he, he takes his 12 disciples aside, verse 17 of chapter 20. He takes them aside privately, and he does so in order to inform them one more time, actually the third time as recorded by Matthew, about his impending mission in Jerusalem. 
that he is going to Jerusalem. In fact, they are journeying to Jerusalem. Verse 18, you'll see it. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. That They are going to Jerusalem, and it is not going to be like they expect. He is going to Jerusalem, accompanied with them, and he is going to die there. He's going to die there. This is, the, this is the third time he has given them this prophecy, and they don't respond well. They haven't responded well to the other two. They are not going to respond well to this one either. Each of the three times that he, he prophesied his, his death and resurrection in Jerusalem, he adds details for them to the account. He, he sort of fills it out for them. This third time... When he uh, fills in details, we'll look at them here just momentarily. The details he fills in actually act like a, like a virtual table of contents for the upcoming Passion Week. He spells out very particularly, very in clearly and detailed fashion what it is that awaits him in the capital city. So just quickly, again, to kind of get all of this going in our minds, uh, looking at these three predictions, back to chapter 16 first, verses 21 through 23, where it says there, from this time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go up to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So in that first unveiling of the plan for him, we understand that it is a divine necessity that he go to Jerusalem. He must go and he must die. We learn that he will be killed at the capital city of Jerusalem. We learn that he will suffer under the leadership of the nation of Israel. And we learn that he will be raised on the third day. And of course, Peter, and speaking for the disciples, he cannot tolerate the notion of the king of Israel suffering in such a way. And so he rebukes Jesus. And of course, Peter at that moment is not voicing uh, the, the mind of God. He is voicing uh, Satan's plans and he is severely rebuked. A little later, Jesus speaks to them again in chapter 17 and verse 22 and 23. And he gives them the message again. And he says, while they were gathering together in Galilee... This is just prior to their leaving, about eh, maybe six months-ish before the, the, uh, the Passion Week. Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised up on the third day, and they were deeply grieved. The additional detail that he adds here is this statement, he will be delivered into the hands of men. It, it speaks of betrayal. So he will be killed, and he will be betrayed. And it tells us that the disciples respond to this by being deeply grieved, deeply grieved at that information. Then we arrive in chapter 20 and verses 17 and following to the third specific prediction. Verse 17, chapter 20, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem... He took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, look, pay attention, check it out, don't miss this. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. 
And will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Again, now he speaks of his betrayal that he will be delivered over. But this time, it's not just delivered over to man generically. It is delivered or betrayed specifically to the leadership of Israel. The chief priests and the scribes or said another way to the Sanhedrin. He will be betrayed to the, to the supreme leadership of the nation of Israel. And notice the end of verse 18. They will condemn him to death, meaning that they will conduct a trial and they will find him guilty and they will pass upon him a sentence of death. And so there is going to be a betrayal to the Sanhedrin and there's going to be a trial and there's going to be a verdict of condemnation that is going to come on him. Finally, they, because they do not have the authority of capital punishment that is reserved for Rome only, they, that is the Sanhedrin, cannot kill him. But they, they could have stoned him, of course, but they wanted official judicial execution because they want this thing uh, to be done neat and clean and them to be put aside. They're going to hand him over to the Gentiles, not Gentiles in general. There is only one Gentile power that he could be handed over to it, and it is Rome. He will be handed over to Rome. Rome will mock him. Rome will scourge him. And Rome will crucify him. Crucify him. He will be executed as a general criminal. As a malefactor. It will be the most brutal, the the most despicable, the the most uh, humiliating possible way for this man to die. And on the third day, he will be raised up. So he gives them this particular detailed information. So how are they going to respond? Now what are they going to say? Well, Luke's gospel bails us out. In Luke chapter 18 and verse 34, Luke tells us in a parallel account their response. And it's shocking. It says the disciples understood none of these things and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them and they did not comprehend the things that were said. How did they respond to this very specific, very precise prophecy of the death of the messianic king? Blank. Flatline. They don't get it. It, it's in one ear, out the other. None of it seems to register to them. And you say to yourself, how could that be? How can they be so dense? And the answer is, uh, we should never underestimate the capacity for the human heart to be dense. Okay? This is a good look at our own hearts and how, how dense we are and how many times the truth is presented to us. And, you know, uh, we don't get it. They're no different. They are no different. In particular, I think the problem for them is that this is outside of their paradigm. This is not what they expect. This is not what they want. They are seeing the world not in the way that it is, but in the way they want it to be. Specifically, again, Luke indicates in Luke 19 and verse 11 that they, along with the crowds, they are part of the crowds in this misunderstanding, are expecting him to arrive in Jerusalem and bring in the messianic kingdom. And so that's all they can think of. 
He is going to Rome. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to establish his kingdom. And they are blinded by their own theological presuppositions. They cannot see the truth. These things are hidden from them. Now, that's the backdrop for verse 20 in the account that follows. Jesus has made this this most terrifying prediction of his impending passion. And the next thing that happens is that James and John, along with their mother, come up to him to ask him a favor. And the favor they ask him absolutely astounds us. It is the height of spiritual blindness. It is the height of insensitivity. It is the height of of like missing the obvious. But this is what they do. They demonstrate that capacity we all have to miss the nose that is plainly in front of our face. And so there are two sides here, beginning in verse 20. Two sides of this this kingdom greatness that is being talked about. First, in verses 20 through 23, I'm calling it kingdom greatness sought. Kingdom greatness sought. Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. (laughs) Did you just hear what I said? Nope. Not so much. He's traveling with the crowds. Included in the crowds are our wives and children and, and a number of women who have been attached to and following him as disciples. Not part of the 12, but part of a wider group of disciples. One of those women that has been traveling with him is identified for us here as the mother of the sons of Zebedee. That is the mother of the brothers, James and John. So it is the mother of James and John. She comes to Jesus, it says here, right? Verse 20. And uh, she bows down. And and we shouldn't think of this, I think, so much as worship as more of of what one would do in the presence of a king. So she, she humbles herself physically in the presence of this king. And she makes request of him. And she basically kneels down and she says, you know, uh, Jesus, uh, I have a request to make of you. I have a request to make of you. Just grant me this one thing. Notice he doesn't say up to half my kingdom, right? He's smarter than that. So he says to her, what do you want? Okay, what do you want? And she says, oh, it's just a small matter. These are two boys of mine. Will you um, just basically appoint them to sit on your right and your left? The right and the left speak of the positions of authority and power. 
I don't want you to make him king, because obviously you're king. But what I want you to do is get them right there close to you on both sides of you so that they may share the authority of that kingdom. Basically, what I want you to do is I want you to solidify their positions. Now, where would she come up with this idea? I mean, that's, uh, you know, to use the Yiddish, that's chutzpah. You know, how would she come up with this idea that she's going to come to him and she's going to to say, you know, will you grant me one favor? Sure, what do you want? No, he didn't even say that. He said, what do you want? And she I want this and I want this. Where did she get that idea? I think the idea is is clear enough in chapter 19. Where in, in, uh, in verses 27, 28, where, where uh, Peter says, hey, we've left everything to follow you. What about us? And Jesus says, in the regeneration that is in the coming kingdom, you will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Hey, you're going to be in a position of great authority in the kingdom of God, the messianic kingdom, and in rulership and authority over the 12 tribes of Israel. Great. And mom heard that. So mom just wants to kind of move it up a little. Okay, great. We're going to be on one of 12 tribes. Uh, I claim one and two, right? I want throne numbers one and two. Just want to, you know, clarify this, solidify this. Now, this is just a continuation of a long-standing, simmering dispute that has been going on among these disciples. For example, back in chapter 18, take a look at verse 1. This is, this is right when they are, you know, they're leaving Galilee, headed south. They've been walking with them now, some of them for like three years. Verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, fine, all right, you arbitrate. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And we're told in the other gospel accounts that they've been arguing all the way from the, from the Mount of Transfiguration onward as to like who's top dog. We're all great. Who's greatest? It continues on, by the way. It doesn't end here in in Matthew 20. And that's the really sad part about it. Uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 24 indicates that it's going on at the table of the Last Supper. They are still jockeying for position. Okay? These men understand how it's done in the world... And they're good at it. They're good at it. Now, James and John, these are two brothers, early disciples of Jesus. They, along with Peter, you'll remember, were taken by Jesus up to the Mount of Transfiguration. They heard the heavenly voice. They were, they were made partakers of a vision of the splendor and glory of the Messianic King that the others didn't get. So they are part of the inner circle of disciples. They are already sort of a half step above, as it were. And they're just doing what would be natural to do for men who are ambitious and proud and passionate. I just want to solidify things. I just want to make sure that everybody knows who's boss around here. These men understood the ways of the world. They They know how to get ahead. And they're just doing it. They're just acting out the way the world operates. 
Now, it's interesting because Mark's gospel in a parallel account, he indicates that, uh, that James and John make the request. Matthew tells us that, they, that it's actually their mother who makes the request. And how do we reconcile that? Well, I think the answer is this, is that James and John are behind it. They put mom up to it. So it's not mom trying to get her sons, you know, in a little better place. It's James and John saying, hey, mom, help us out a little here. Okay. And, and you can see that even in, in Matthew's gospel because uh, he, he turns and he addresses them. Right. And uh, uh, let's see, uh, verse, uh, verse 23, he, he responds to them. So he sort of passes by mom once the question's voice and he addresses them directly. Okay, so it's, it's, it's James, it's John, and they get mom to come make the request. Now, why? Why do, you, why do you have mom come and make this request? Now, someone might say, well, because, you know, nobody can turn down a Jewish mother, right? Uh, but that's not true, okay? The reason they ask for mom to make this request, I think, and I think my ground is reasonably solid here, is because the Gospels seem to indicate to us that she is Jesus' aunt, that she is related to him. She is actually, it appears, and again, it's not definite, but it's pretty strong when you compare the, the uh, comparison of um, Matthew chapter 27 and verse 56, Mark chapter 15 and verse 40, and John chapter 19 and verse 25. You put those three verses together, all containing lists, and you start uh, eliminating the commonalities of the list, what you can determine is that the, this woman is actually uh, Salome, and she is the sister of Jesus' mother, Mary. That makes her his aunt. It makes her his aunt. That is that James and John are his cousins, first cousins. This is probably further strengthening the idea of at his cross that Jesus turns over care of his mother to John, who would be her nephew. Okay, so I, I think it's a pretty strong indication there's a family tie here. And so these two, these two characters, you know, they pull out all the stops. So it's not just get mom to make the request. It's, it's let's, pull the, let's play the family card as well and get the aunt to come and to ask him, for this favor. And so that's exactly what they do. They bring her forward. She asks. And Jesus says, in verse 22, he answers, You do not know what you are asking. You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We're able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Jesus responds to Salome, but, but really through her to James and to John and and he says, it may appear like a simple request, but it is not a simple request. It's not an easy thing that you're asking. In fact, you don't even know what it is you're asking. 
I've just told you about my suffering that is coming. This horrible nature of suffering, and it is not even registered with you. It's off your radar screen. So he says to them, are you able to drink the cup? And the cup here is a cup of suffering. Are you able to drink the cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? And they say, no probs, right? Sure, sure. Now, these are not stupid men. These are not stupid men. These are not men who, who don't know what crucifixion is all about. They've seen it. So the only thing I can conclude here is, is they don't know what cup he's talking about. We're, we're, you know, and how many times in the Gospels do we see that, right? Jesus is talking at one level and people are talking at the other and you know, they're missing each other. They're missing each other here. Jesus is talking about a cup of suffering. They, I, I, I'm convinced here, they are, they are thinking about a golden chalice of leadership. Can you, can you drink from the king's cup? Of course. Don't worry, we won't spill the wine. Oh, beloved, this is some of his passion. This is some of his humiliation. This is some of his suffering. To be with these men so long and to have them so obtuse to the reality of his life, what he's about, what he's about to do. You talk about being alone, huh? This man was alone. Now, regardless of whether they understand or not, they are going to suffer. Verse 23, he said to them, my cup you shall drink. My cup you shall drink. And indeed, it was true. James was martyred according to Acts chapter 12 and verse 2. Sometime probably around A.D. 44. So just a little over a decade beyond this. John was not martyred. John was the last living apostle. But he lived out his life, the ends of his days, in exile. All alone on a barren rock of an island called Patmos. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. Tremendous suffering. Tremendous suffering. You will suffer. You will drink the cup. But notice this. What you're asking for, I don't have the authority to do. This is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. He's just answering them in keeping with the principle of the parable of the laborers in the vineyard that he has just taught them. It is the Father who is the vineyard owner. It is the Father who rewards according to his sovereign purposes exactly what the parable teaches and jesus is saying the exact same thing here it is by the father's prerogative that the right and the left hand 
will be awarded in the Messiah's kingdom. And at this point, it remains hidden in the mysteries of the Godhead. Now, this should not distress us. For even Jesus' position as the messianic king did not come to him as a result of him asking for it. It came to him as a result of his humble obedience to the will of the Father who sent him from the from the the eternal counsel of the triune Godhead into space and time to take to himself human flesh, to live and to die as a messianic king. And to redeem all of creation, including Adam's fallen descendants. Jesus didn't get the kingship by asking. The disciples are not going to get the right and the left hand by asking either. It is up to the Father. It is up to the Father. James and John are looking for greatness. They want to be great in the kingdom. But their approach is according to the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus is going to say it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. All that you know, all that you've learned, all that you've become successful at in getting ahead in this life is the exact opposite of the way it is in the life to come. And so he's going, to, he's going to teach them another way. He's going to teach them another way. And that takes us to the flip side of the coin. Kingdom greatness sought the flip side. Kingdom greatness taught. Kingdom greatness taught. Verses 24 and following. Verse 24. In hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. Yeah, I bet they did. It was probably because they had uh, such uh, longing for their spiritual well-being. And they were concerned that they were, that they were approaching the Messiah's kingdom in a, in a worldly, earthly sort of way. And obviously, that's not the right way to do it. So, so they were concerned for them. No. They were indignant. They were incensed. They were ticked off. Why? Because these two got the inside track. That's why. They did what the others wanted to do. Hey, how come we didn't think about that? These characters, huh? These characters. It's really good, by the way, to, to, see, to see this because it gives great hope to me. <laughs> it gives great hope to me because I'm a character like they are. Just subject to all the same foibles and, and, and uh, frailties that they are. So yeah, they're mad. They're mad at James and John. They're mad that they got mom to come and, you know, maybe pull the family card and, and, and you know, how to shoehorn their way into the right and the left hand. They weren't content with just barely one of 12. They want to be one and two. Would have been interesting, by the way, to try to figure out once they got the one and two, how do they resolve right or left? Now, maybe they, you know, arm wrestle. I, I'm not sure. John was young and fast, so maybe it would be a foot race. 
But yeah, they are not happy. They're indignant. They are indignant with the two brothers. Listen, this, this little band, this little group of disciples upon whom the, the, the work of the church is going is to rest, right? They're going to be the foundation here. This thing is falling apart. It is fracturing. It, it is they are at one another's throats. And Jesus is going to be dead here in a little over a couple of weeks. This whole endeavor is in trouble. This is a serious moment. So Jesus acts, verse 25. He calls them to himself. He pulls them aside. He says, listen. We need, we need another lesson. We need a remedial lesson. You know, this is like lesson, you know, 8.02. On leadership. On leadership. He calls them to himself. Verse 25. And he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. So the first thing he does is he just reminds them of what they already know. This is how it works in the world. This is how it works. It's obvious. Leaders and rulers in the kingdoms of this world have and exercise considerable authority. Now, he's not necessarily criticizing this. He is merely observing the reality of it. This is how it works. And the general reasoning that that goes on in this world behind those that possess great earthly authority is is basically this. What's the point of having it if you never use it? What's the point of having great authority, great power, if you never use it? And so, generally, leadership in this world operates from a top-down principle, doesn't it? It's the person in the corner office. Why do we call it a corner office? Well, because it has windows on both sides. Better view. It is the boss who tells you how it's going to happen, how it's going to be done. We don't hold a vote. The boss just says, you do this, you do this, you do this, you're fired. And you go, got it. That's how the world works. That's how the world works. And, and, and there, are, there are perks that go with power. Isn't that true? There are real benefits to being the boss. Real benefits. If there were no benefits for being boss, nobody would want to be boss. There are lots of benefits for being boss. Some of them are, are real significant. Others of them are kind of silly. Reminds me of a time many, many years ago when uh, we lived in, in Dallas, Texas. And, and uh, I had just gone to work for Security Pacific Bank. You remember Security Pacific Bank? They were a great West Coast bank that uh, is no more. And uh, I had just started my first day on the job at this uh, at Security Pacific Bank and in their operation in Dallas, Texas. And uh, my immediate supervisor was taking me around and introducing me to the senior management there. And it was the most interesting way to do it because he, he took me around not to introduce me to them by, by face and name, but to introduce me to their offices. So he took me around at lunchtime when nobody was there. 
He took me to the office of a vice president. He opened the door and he said, take a look in. So I looked. I don't know what I'm looking for, but I looked. He says, all right, now what I want you to do is I want you to step inside the office and then step back out. So I, I step in and I step out. He says, did you feel it? I said, feel what? He says, there's padding under the carpet. Did you feel it? And I said, well, let me try it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I got it. I felt it. Then he took me to a senior vice president's office. It was a little bit bigger. And he says, all right, step in. So, you know, I'm not too dumb. So I figured, okay, now I know what I'm looking for, right? So I step in. He says, you feel it? I said, yeah, there's more, more padding, thicker padding under the carpet. He says, that's right. He took me to an executive vice president's office. Bigger office. Fancy wall coverings. I step in there. I said, yeah, I feel it. The padding's even thicker. Then he takes me around to the president's office. And I step in there. The padding's really thick in there. And he comes back out and he says, okay, do you understand? And I said, I think so. He says, as you move up, you get thicker padding under your carpet. That's one of the perks of being the boss. Got it. Got it. That's silly. But that is so like the way it is. So like the way it is. It is top-down authority. It is exercised. And, and there are perks that come with it. Perks that come with it. And that's the way the world operates. And Jesus is going to draw a contrast here. Verse 26, he says, It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. The world is, is, runs this way. My kingdom runs the opposite way. Look around the way the world operates and you can, and you can be almost assured that the kingdom of God operates in the opposite way. The opposite way. And that's exactly what Jesus says here. There's a different value scale. You want to go up? Go down. The way up is down. To be a servant, to be a slave. Listen, it's legitimate to want to be great in the kingdom of God. It is a legitimate uh, uh, desire to be great among the people of God, to be used among the people of God. But one must understand that, that the, the only way to achieve that greatness is to embrace the biblical path. And the biblical path is servanthood, slavery. It is to go down, to go up. As I say, this is a remedial lesson for them because take a look back at, at chapter 18. Verse 1, right? The, the, the argument, the discussion about who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There Jesus calls a child to himself. Maybe, maybe one of Peter's children. We're not sure. 
He calls his child, and he, he holds his child up as an example to them. Verse 3, or verse 4, he says, Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This child is one of, of no status, no privilege, no right in society. This is the one. He says, repent and make yourself like this child. Divest yourself of your notions of authority and power. You want to be great? Become a child. You want to be great? Become a servant, a slave of all. This is the path. One writer commenting on this, he, he says, and I quote, the, the natural human concern with status and importance is clearly one of the most fundamental instincts which must be unlearned by those who belong to the kingdom of God. Isn't that interesting? It must be unlearned. We're good at, at the worldly side of things. Some even better than others. But, but we all get it. We all know how it works. And we all play the game at one level or another. But we need to unlearn that among the people of God. We need to unlearn it. Now notice verse 28. Uh, 27, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Verse 28, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus says, listen, I am the illustration, the, the ultimate illustration of this principle. My life, the son of man, The reference to Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14, right? The one who comes and receives the kingdom from the hand of the Father. The great and glorious messianic king in all of its fullness. For even the Son of Man, even that one who is is above all, humbles his heart. I didn't come to be served. I deserve to be served. The right thing would be to serve me. If anyone deserves to be served, it's me. But I didn't come to be served. Instead, I came to serve. All the way up to and including my own death. My own death. I will give myself a ransom, a payment. To redeem those sold into the slavery of sin. My own blood I will offer to release my people. The angel said to Joseph, you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Beloved, Jesus came at the will of the Father, at the direction of the Father. He came not to be served, but to serve. He said his his meat and his bread is to do the will of the Father. It is to die as a substitute in place of his people. To drink the cup of the wrath of God. He refers to it again in the Garden of Gethsemane. If there is any way this cup can pass from me, yet not my will but your will be done. And he drained it 
every last drop. And he drained it for me. And he drained it for you. If you'll but in faith turn and receive this gift of salvation. Even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. The lesson here is powerful. It's powerful. Let me offer you a couple of ways to practically employ this truth. Just observations. I think the first that stands out to me is that that Jesus never rebukes the brothers. Did you notice that? He doesn't say to them, that is an illegitimate request, uh, an illegitimate desire. Prominence in my kingdom. You shouldn't want to be prominent among the people of God. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say it at all. What he corrects is not their desire for greatness, but their understanding of the means and the way to achieve the greatness. It's a big difference. Standing on the sideline, looking at your shoelaces and pawing the ground and saying, oh, you know, I I can't be used. That is not true humility. That is not service. It's legitimate to desire leadership among the people of God. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, in verse 1, he says, If a man aspires to the role of an elder, it is a noble thing he desires. It's a noble thing. Now, that sets up an immediate tension, doesn't it? All right, if, it, if the way up is down and service and, and slavery and so forth is the means by which one is elevated in the kingdom of God, and yet a guy desires to be a leader in the church, how do I balance it? How do I know that he's really desiring it in the right way and get myself into a loop I don't get out of? I think that's when I would go to John 13 and would apply Jesus' illustration there prior to the Passover or he dons the, the apron, the, the towel of a slave. You remember that? And he washes their stinking feet. Because there's not one of them that will wash anybody else's. And he says in John 13 and verse 15, that what you have seen me do, you do. You adopt that attitude. And so when you see someone aspiring for leadership, what, what are we looking for? We're looking for a servant's heart. Someone who is serving among the people of God. Long before they get a title or a corner office or padding under their carpet or a preferred parking spot. Second, church history is replete with examples of those who would rather be a Lord than a servant. Even a cursory reading of church history, you'll see it. There are many who have been leadership over God's people who would, who would rather be a Lord than a servant. And the devastation that it has brought among the people of God is heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Not all that long ago, a, a major ministry up in the Pacific Northwest 
has melted down because their celebrity pastor would rather be a lord than a servant. The church is devastated. Thousands of people damaged. That leads me to my third observation from this, and that is that God will not long bless a church in which his leadership principles are rejected. Let me say that to you again. God will not long bless a church in which his leadership principles are rejected. Why? Because according to James chapter 4 and verse 6, God is actively opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Outward success is a very, very dangerous thing to measure a church by. Very dangerous. And that takes me to my fourth. And it's just this. We're living here together at Foothill. This is our corner of the vineyard. This is the place that God has appointed to us to minister. And here in this little corner of the the vineyard, we need to embrace the truth. We need to understand leadership, service, greatness. Not as the world understands it, but but as God understands it. And has made so clear to us. We need to embrace this reality. It needs to be part of the fabric and fiber of who we are. And we need to pray. We need to pray for all of those in leadership here. That they would embrace it too. Listen, the pull of the world and the, and the temptations of the world and, and worldly power and authority and, and exercising it and, and perks that come from it and all of this stuff, it is a very tangible, very real and present danger. And nothing will shatter the church of God here. Nothing will shatter the unity of the people of God here quicker than an importation of of a worldly understanding of leadership authority and greatness so we need to pray we need to pray for our leaders men with feet of clay sons of adam dealing with their own sin subject to their own temptations and and failures and foibles. We need to pray together. Not once, not twice, regularly. Regularly praying that the leadership will resist the temptation to lead by the principles of this world. If we do that, God will answer that prayer. That is a prayer that God delights in answering. And in it, He will make Foothill a lighthouse of truth. A people that stands out from the world. Those crazy people at Foothill. Man, do they love each other and and serve each other. Out on the wall out here, there's there's a leadership wall. Many of you probably know that. Some of you have probably walked by it for years and didn't even notice it. 
Now you can. It's out here on the, on the west wall. And there are pictures there of elders and deacons and those that are in elder training and deacon training. Pictures of the staff. And above it, it says, serving God by serving you. It's been there a long time because we want to capture that idea. We capture that idea that the way up is down. Is down. Let's pray. Father, it's the longing of our hearts to live in close fellowship with you. Our Father, we are, we are a people who are torn, bent, and twisted by sin. We are a people who are regularly inundated with the philosophies of this world. We war against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and it wars against us. So easy to import these notions, these practices into the leadership of the ministries of this church. Father, we pray you would protect us, all of us. You would help us to embrace this truth, Father. That we would long to be a servant. Make me a servant, the song says. Make me a servant today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace, beloved. God bless you.